millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Ido Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 5th of February. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Okay, co-host Ido Bach is back, back in the chair. Ido, how are you? How is Berlin? <laughs> Berlin is its currently snowing, which is quite nice. I think the talk here is dominated by the vaccine rollout in Europe, or lack thereof, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's going so slowly. Germany is actually, I believe, only very slightly above the EU average in terms of its rollout, which is not great because it's a country that prides itself on efficiency and uh, was doing very well on certain early measures of the pandemic, for instance, testing. So you would hope that things are going to get better, but European leaders seem to be tamping down expectations. But interestingly, although Germany is a rich country and a big country and so would have done fine and probably much better if it had gone at the vaccine procurement alone, a big majority of Germans still support the joint EU procurement, which is quite interesting and uh, an interesting feature of, of German politics, I think. And how's DC? DC is fine. We have a similarly tortured vaccine rollout. But the big news this week was that here in Washington, a new member of Congress by the name of Marjorie Taylor Greene was stripped of her committee assignments. She, in the past few years, has shared and liked just deeply Islamophobic, racist, anti-Semitic social media posts. She had an image while she was running for Congress that had her holding an AR-15 next to the faces of three members of the the squad, all progressive women of color, and liked a, a Facebook post about executing Nancy Pelosi, who was the Speaker of the House. So Democrats basically gave Republicans an ultimatum. They said, either you can take her out of the, her committee assignments, or we will. It should be noted that one of those committees was labor and education. And she... Uh, has argued that two tragic school shootings were false flag operations. So one might say that this person has no business being on a committee about education. Republicans did not do that. And indeed, when she spoke before them, some of them got up to applaud her. A handful of them voted with the Democrats last night. So she she did lose her, her committee assignments. Democrats won the day. But I think it's worth noting that Republicans sided with her, right? This could have been about there are common standards with which you treat your colleagues and your fellow human beings, and that transcends part- partisan politics. And Republicans chose option B, which was to make this about, no, this is the Republican Party. So, okay, that's your choice. This is the Republican Party now. Before we get to our guest, what has been the moment of this past week that you think will go down in history or that you just want to talk about? 
For once, I think this genuinely will go down in history. It's uh, the coup in Myanmar. Early on Monday morning, the military detained several civilian leaders, including the so-called state councillor, which is essentially the prime minister, which is Aung San Suu Kyi, who had been elected. She was elected, her party was elected as part of the transition away from military rule, because Myanmar had been ruled by a military regime for nearly 50 years, I believe. And so the military uh, detained Aung San Suu Kyi and, and several MPs and the president and latterly accused her of illegally importing at least 10 walkie-talkies. So that's the grounds on under which she is being charged. And so it puts, a, puts an end for the moment to Myanmar's relatively limited experiment with electoral democracy. Although Aung San Suu Kyi was elected, the army retained significant influence within the democratic framework, but they decided that wasn't enough for them and uh, committed a coup nonetheless. And they've said that it will be a one-year state of emergency under their rule, at least. So I think that will go down in history. And what's yours? Yeah, I think you've you've chosen a, a genuinely historic moment, a genuinely historic moment this week. Mine is a continuation of something I've talked about on this podcast before. So if you have not tuned in before to hear me talk about the farmers' protests in India. Basically, this has been going on for months now. The Modi government said we need to make these changes to the agricultural sector. Farmers have said these changes are going to put us at the mercy of large corporations. This will be devastating for us. And so took to the streets to protest. This past week, we've spoken before about how these protests have how how the clashes between police and protesters have, have in some cases been deadly. It's been violent. The government responded by turning off the internet in areas around Delhi. This was written up, became a a story. And Rihanna, the pop star, said, why are we not talking about this? And tweeted that out with hashtag farmers protest. So did Greta Thunberg, the young climate activist. So did Mina Harris, who's Vice President Kamala Harris's niece. And Indian celebrities and Hindu activists and the government went just truly, really reacted to this. The proportion of what happened to the response was there was no proportion. You know, it was that you had cricket stars coming or a a cricket star coming out and saying Indian sovereignty is so important. You had the United Hindu Front burning portraits of Rihanna and and Greta and Mina Harris. And I just think that what's so interesting to me about this is that, first of all, a tweet is not an attack on sovereignty. People commenting about what's happening in your country does not violate your sovereignty. And in fact, what's happening in your country is happening because of your country, right? It's not happening because of Rihanna. It's happening because farmers are deeply unhappy with the changes that the government is pushing through. To me, it was such an interesting case study in like nationalist thinking and rhetoric and politicking in the context of these ongoing protests. With that, would you like to introduce our guest? Our guest is Felix Light. Felix is a reporter at the Moscow Times and sometime contributor of very insightful pieces to the New Statesman International. Welcome. Thank you. That was an incredibly flattering introduction. I'm a religious listener of the pod, so I'm really pleased to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. It's been a very big week in Russian politics, and I've seen you refer to it in quite epochal terms. So can you can you just explain what has happened over the past few weeks in, in Russia and what the significance of these few weeks in terms of Russian history and Russian politics are? It's right what you say. I, I, I do kind of, I do think this is a kind of collectively a sort of a week that we will look back on in the future uh, as we kind of study the, the contours of Russian history, as it were. You know, it's kind of like 
character really characteristic of this kind of period of, of of Putinism of modern Russian history is that nothing happens for months and months, and then so much happens in you know compressed into two weeks. And yeah, I, and I really think this is one of those times. So we had just over two weeks ago now Navalny's Alexei Navalny. Certainly the most prominent critic of, of Putin and of the Russian state, both internationally and domestically, returned to the country uh, after his poisoning last August, which saw him convalescing in Germany for five months. He was fairly warned, I think, that if he came back to Russia, he would be arrested. He would be immediately arrested and he was likely to face extensive amount of time in prison. And that warning, I think, has been quite clearly followed through on these last few days. So on Tuesday... Navalny was sentenced to two years, eight months in, I mean, a prison doesn't even really do it justice. It's a sort of isolated penal colony. He will likely be facing hard labor there and he will be very cut off. Today, he's facing another court case. The first one was for was for fraud on charges that uh, that I think the, the European Court of Human Rights ruled about eight years ago were politically motivated. Today, he's facing another sentencing. And at the time of recording, I don't think the verdict has been announced. But he's facing um, charges for slandering a veteran of the, of the Second World War as well. So it's kind of a, a open season on criminal charges on Alexei Navalny right now. And this has all obviously been playing out against probably both the largest protests in about a decade in Russia, and by far the most intense and widespread round of judicial and security force repression of protesters, not merely in the last 10 years, probably since the end of the Soviet Union. You know, the the state has, I think, made it quite clear that its intention at this point is to pretty much annihilate the Navalny movement. And it has set about doing so with some gusto. So even at this point, three, four days after the last round of protests, it's really unclear how many people there are in jail on um, protesting related offences in Moscow. But it is in the thousands. And it is really, really at the height of a, of a real serious crackdown right now. Yeah. Over the past year, it certainly seems like there's been much more of a crackdown on the opposition than had previously been the case in Putin's Russia. And so it obviously culminated in the attempted poisoning of Navalny, probably by Russian state agents, which is a departure from from how politics and opposition politics has sort of traditionally been conducted in Russia, where there was some space for opposition to the regime and for opposition politics. But in recent in recent months, with the poisoning and then the jailing on Navalny's return, and then the very brutal methods used against journalists and protesters, like, for instance, electrocuting protesters as they were being arrested, it really seems like there's a, there's a more restrictive and, and harsher policy from, from the Kremlin against opposition. What do you put that down to? Yeah, so I think all of that is absolutely fair. Like, and I think the only reasonable explanation is that fundamentally something has changed in the calculations and perhaps the mindset of the kind of decision makers in the Russian elite and specifically the people sort of around Putin and who exercise power, which at this point in time is mostly kind of either veterans of the of the security services or people who are not, but who are basically willing to do their bidding, who are doing to who are willing to kind of perform their their will. As as I guess uh, you know you alluded to, you know Navalny is not a new figure. He's been kind of on the Russian political scene as probably the sort of preeminent Kremlin critic 
for probably about a decade, give or take. And he's never been tolerated per se, but he's never like been destroyed either. You know, he's been harassed legally. He's been in and out of jail. He's been chased through the courts on, you know, any number of occasions. But it seemed like for a long time, like the Kremlin fundamentally thought it could it could tolerate him and it could live with him. I think that has basically changed. It has it has clearly made a decision that the kind of, you know, as they say, non-systemic opposition that Navalny represents, which is to say opposition that doesn't seek to work within a Putin-dominated system, but to destroy that system, being non-systemic, being out of that system, being in opposition to it is criminal. And, and, and you know, that is now going to be treated as a crime against the state. And I think, you know, the, the circumstances of Navalny's poisoning in August, which I think, you know, even though I said earlier that I think that in future this week will be regarded as, as something really a fundamental change in Russian politics, it probably already happened in August. You know, the the decision to target Navalny specifically with with, with Novichok, which is a weapon that has been used, as, as British listeners will will remember, against the Skripals, who were kind of defected spies, or the defected spy and his daughter living in the UK, and they they were targeted with this weapon, a Soviet era nerve agent, and to target Navalny with it as well, clearly, I think, is a, a demonstration of the fact that not only is Navalny seen as by the Russian state as worthy of death, but as worthy of the death of a traitor, I think. And that is a fundamental change from where we've been in Russian politics for like a decade now. I'd like to speak to you about the protest movement or movements more generally. But before we do, I have a question on Navalny himself, because there's so much spoken and written about who he is and what he believes. So there are people who point out his past racist or sort of Russian chauvinistic comments. There are people who say, no, no, he's a liberal. There are people who say it's all about fighting corruption. What are his core beliefs and what's driving him? Uh So is all of the above an acceptable answer? Of course. (laughs) Um, I think it might have to be. And you're right. He is an enigma, like ideologically. So he's been in Russian politics for like 30 years. Actually, 20 is better, better saying. But in the Yeltsin period, he was what they called a shock therapist, right? So an advocate of like a really rapid, aggressive transition to capitalism. Later on, he became a sort of left liberal. Later on, he, he had a, a very well publicized and, and increasingly quite well known kind of, I don't want to belittle it, but I would probably characterize it as a flirtation with ethnic anti-immigration Russian nationalism. I would say, however, that the thread running through all of these things and the thread that has led him more in recent years to adopt kind of a more leftish populist position where he's kind of like uh, for raising the minimum wage, maybe for even for a universal basic income, for more money for health and education. The fundamental thread that runs through this is that he's not even in a derogatory sense, an opportunist. He is someone who is there for whom the purpose of his life is to build an electoral majority in Russia against the Kremlin, to rally enough support to make a serious challenge to the government. And then, of course, I think, you know, you have to answer the question, you know, okay, why is he doing that? Like, why has he exposed himself to like years of massive personal and legal risk? I would probably characterize his absolutely core motivating beliefs as anti-corruption. So that is is something that is, is is constantly there. And you see it right back in the things he was writing, you know, in the mid 90s, that, you know, corruption is the fundamental problem that sort of ails Russia. And it's what's led him into this more recent phase where, you know, the essence of his political activism is sort of like these videos that he does that sort of expose corruption among sort of senior officials. It's hard to say what he believes apart from that. But I would say there, there are a core set of beliefs that are basically kind of 
classically liberal and anti-corruption, but pretty much everything else is pretty negotiable for him, I would mm-hmm. say. I've heard some people say that what's different about him is that of the, the the figures who are kind of held up as potential leaders of the opposition or or antagonists to to Putin, Navalny is kind of the first who wasn't himself either an oligarch or Jewish, right? Or, or he was he was this figure who could appeal to to Russians. One, what do you make of that? And then two, what happens if he's imprisoned? What happens to the opposition? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. So on the first point, um, it's, it's funny you say that because a few days ago, a guy called Sergei Markov, who's a kind of like a very big kind of like pro-Kremlin political commentator, did this Facebook mm-hmm. post where he was like, here are the 22 reasons why Navalny is an effective politician. <laughs> One of them was like, he's got a nice blonde wife. He has two children. He is a, he's an ethnic Russian. You know, like these are really helpful. You know, like mm-hmm. to some extent, he's kind of like an everyman. To urban Russians, he's very relatable. He's a very kind of exceptionally charismatic He's funny and he's a very gifted publicist sort of and a spokesman for his own positions. If he's removed, yeah, that's a that's a big problem for the Russian opposition. You know, it's it's hard to pinpoint who could ever fill Navalny-sized shoes. And I think it's even more difficult because we are moving into a time where I think the quite explicit message from the Russian state is that not only Navalny is a criminal, but that anyone associated with him is a criminal. So in, in, in September, Russia has parliamentary elections, and it is as good as assured that no one even remotely associated with Navalny will be allowed to run. And I would suspect that in addition to that, we will see similar cases to the one currently being prosecuted against Navalny, prosecuted against his, his sort of lieutenants and right-hand men and women. The future of the Russian opposition is bleak, I would say, in terms of personnel. In terms of support, it's probably never been stronger. But in terms of personnel, I think we're going to see a lot more of these very closely targeted prosecutions of, 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 of anti-Putin figures. Well, I want to follow up on that, on how it's it's strong in terms of support. And then I'll turn it over to Ido for, for a last question. Something that we've talked about on this podcast before is the difference between the center and the periphery, right? Protests in Moscow and Petersburg and protests at the regional level. Mm-hmm away from the from the capital, I guess, which is the greater political threat to Russian leadership? So which are they more threatened by? And then which do you think is more threatening to the current Russian status quo? Mm-hmm. So I mean, in terms of threat perception, I think they're a lot more alarmed by protests in the regions than they are in Moscow. So I, I wouldn't necessarily overestimate Navalny's ability to turn people out outside the, you know, not just Moscow, but like the three, four or five biggest cities in Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at Khabarovsk, right, it's a city in the, in the far east of Russia, incredibly remote. And it had this summer in, enormous protests because the Kremlin arrested a popular local governor who critically was not a representative of the United Russia Party. And I think this was actually one of the big early signs that we were moving towards a much tougher and more aggressive authoritarian system that, you know, even op- governors from the loyal opposition are not, not accepted. This set off a huge wave of protests. I think there were something like 60,000 regularly taken to the street. But like, that was really alarming. And I, I feel like they didn't really know what to do. So they sort of just let it run its course. What Navalny can do is he can turn like a few people out. He can turn out maybe like a thousand in these kind of cities. He can turn out a lot of people in places like Moscow, in St. Petersburg, in Novosibirsk, which is the third city in Siberia, I'm not really convinced that in objective terms, these things are a threat to the Kremlin, right? Navalny's supporters are not going to stage a revolution tomorrow, right? They are perhaps at most 
generously, uh, Navalny enjoys the backing of perhaps 20% of the Russian population. I would say I wouldn't put him on any higher a pedestal than that. Even expanding his support out to that 20% is quite new. But this 20%, you know, it skews, it skews young, it skews rich, it skews urban, and it skews educated. These demographics, sure, they punch above their weight in terms of cultural power. But like these kids aren't going to storm the Kremlin tomorrow. You know, this isn't going to be a scenario like we saw in Kyrgyzstan in September when overnight just a sort of mob overtook the, the presidential palace. You know, in the absence of serious like elite defections of which there's just no sign, I, I don't think there's a serious challenge for power right now. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Just to move away from Navalny slightly, we've alluded to the harsher crackdown that, that there has been in recent recent months on opposition politicians and also on journalists. And I want to ask you what it's like reporting in Russia at the moment, because what we've alluded to before is that Russia is, by any account, an autocracy, but it has a kind of trappings of democracy, what, what the Russians call managed democracy. And so there were certain features of a liberal democratic system that appeared to be there. And it seems like the Russian government is being more and more cavalier with just not bothering to respect that at all. And so how do you find it reporting for an independent uh, outlet that is by any account, scrupulously fair and very independent. Thank you for that endorsement. <laughs> it's a really good question. So I think like one of the things that certainly surprised me when I moved to Russia almost four years ago was the degree to which the print press is actually not necessarily the kind of print press that you would expect from like you know a, a fairly consolidated authoritarian state. You know, sure there's self censorship, but there is also some like really exceptional investigative work done, and even perhaps the the, the papers that are are sort of under direct or indirect government influence are worth reading. These are not just propaganda sheets, but I do think this might be changing. It's an increasingly alarming situation to be in. I think, you know, over the weekend, we saw Sergei Smirnov, the editor of Media Zona, which is a really, you know, well-respected kind of independent publication. He was just arrested for, unbelievably, for retweeting a joke about a protest that he didn't go to. Like, you know, this is, you know, and, and that is just a, almost like an anecdote that really sums up where we are. You know, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I imagine that I'll, that we as at the Moscow Times are reasonably insulated from this being foreigners. But, you know, I think, the screws are really, really quite clearly being tightened on you know, quality independent journalism here right now. Our listener question this week is related. So we will now move on to a section that we at the New Statesman World Review like to call... You Ask Us. That's not the most your most enthusiastic You Ask Us, but that's all right. <laughs> okay. So our question this week comes to us from Leo. And Leo asks... Using top-grade military nerve agents to poison internal political opponents suggests Russia's leadership has lost influence and needs to rely on raw power. Is this evidence of a coming collapse as it loses oil and gas revenue and client states look elsewhere for help? Felix, as our guest and Russia expert, you can go first. Uh, I know this is like, I've got to just almost like um, object to the premise of the question simply because 
I don't think that using a military-grade nerve agent on an internal dissident is, is the sign of a panicking regime. Quite the contrary, I think it's the sign of a regime that is secure in itself, enough to use kind of terror tactics without the anticipation of significant blowback. And that has used this nerve agent before, was internationally sanctioned for it, and then did it again. Right, right. right. And at the risk of sounding really doom and gloomy, it's hard to sit here now where we are and say that the fundamental gamble didn't pay off, right? Like Navalny is now looking at a long time in prison, which we, you know, we haven't really talked about in detail, but the, the, the absurd levels of brutality that were meted out to, to protesters that came out in support of him was just, I, I think it has, it has quite possibly set the movement on a sort of a path to, as I said before, annihilation. Leonid Volkov, who is essentially Navalny's deputy, almost by default, because all of the other ones are in jail. He lives in Lithuania, by the way, hence why he's not in jail. He has essentially called off protests this week. And I don't think they had any choice. You know, like, there are so many people in prison for these protests now. They've filled up almost all the jail space, not just in Moscow, but in the region. You know, I was out yesterday at a detention facility for, for, for illegal immigrants awaiting deportation, and it is filled up with... Moscow kids who were picked up for protesting on the last few days, you know, I find it really difficult to imagine how the fundamental bet that the Kremlin made, which is that we can kill or otherwise neutralize this opponent and reasonably little in the grand scheme of things will happen to us, has not basically been rewarded, you know. I guess to move on to the, the essence of, of Leo's question, I would not bet on, as you say, a, a coming collapse uh, in the foreseeable future. You know, I think that it's, you know, people have been forecasting the end of Putinism since about 2001. And, you know, I think this is a mature regime with the flexibility and, frankly, the public support that it needs to remain in power. You know, this is not a regime staggering towards its end. I would not bet against the regime being in power in, its, in, in, in some form or other in 10, 20 years. Uh, you know, I'm sorry for, 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 for sounding the note of pessimism here, but I think that's, that's where Russian politics is right now. For my answer, I'm going to broaden it out slightly to what I think the question is getting at, which is how do you punish a big country for lawlessness and acting in a rogue way against international law and against international norms and the kind of norms that govern basically civilised society and civilised relations between states? And it's something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently because... There are lots of examples of this most prominently, this question, most prominently, obviously, the Uyghurs in China, right? I think most people in many countries across the West think that what is happening to the Uyghurs is reprehensible and a crime against humanity unparalleled in recent history. But what can you do? What can these countries do? It's within China's sovereign territory. China is a really powerful country. And if it wants to go and do whatever it's doing in Xinjiang, there is not that much that Western countries or other countries full stop can do because ultimately power talks. And it's the same issue in Russia. Russia is a big country. And if it wants to go and annex parts of a neighboring sovereign state, and if it wants to go and poison political opponents abroad and then also at home and then brutalize protesters and so on, there is not a ton that... Western countries can do. And I think this is going to become more and more of an issue in global politics in the years to come. You can argue that it was foreshadowed by 
the US and the UK invading Iraq against most of world opinion and kind of just going in at it alone. But it's going to become more and more of an issue as countries that feel that they are big enough to do whatever they want can simply ignore the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of think as well that, look, in the specific case of kind of Navalny, it's especially difficult to kind of calibrate an international response because in doing so, you feed the notion, which may sound like absurd propaganda to us, but is relatively widely held in Russia, that Navalny is some kind of foreign agent, that he is you know, a paid up stooge of the West. And you know, I cannot emphasize enough how much sort of credibility these kind of conspiratorial views of Navalny do have a a wide degree of credence in Russia. And I think, you know, in doing so, it is not clear to me that by, um, I guess, voicing support and, and, and supporting Navalny as, as foreign states, you don't feed his, his, his critics at home. And I, I don't have an answer to that. Like, it's, it's a really awful moral quandary to be in. I agree with, with you both. I think that in terms of the response, one thing that I think countries that that pride themselves on their democratic liberal values or Western countries or whatever word you want to use, need to ask themselves exactly what behavior they're trying to change, right? Right now, the United States, for example, has on Russia sanctions related to Ukraine, sanctions related to the aforementioned Skripal poisoning, sanctions related to the killing of Sergei Magnitsky. And, you know, some of this is to try to get Russia to change its behavior in international relations. Some of it is to try to discourage Russia from using Novichok again. Some of it is to try to peel oligarchs away from the Kremlin. Some of it is to say, well, you you know, you can do whatever you want in your own country, but there's no reason for you to come take corrupt money and put it in our financial systems. I'm not saying that any of these are not worthy aims, although some people think that one could also make the argument that it's wrong for a country to use sanctions to try to change another's behavior. However you feel about that issue, what I am saying is that you're, you're, you're using all of these tools to try to change behavior, but the behaviors are different, right? So it ends up, it ends up with just <laughs> more and more sanctions and, and the behaviors haven't changed. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing is that I can remember 10 years ago when there were the protests after Putin announced he would be running for president again, sometimes referred to in the English press as the Snow Revolution. And I can remember how optimistic people were. And we have seen now that that optimism. I mean, it's been 10 years. Putin is still in power. He's arguably more powerful. There are two ways of looking at this. The first is that protests and optimism and, and this sort of spirit of things will change, that, that that gets snuffed out. The other way of looking at this is that it's 10 years later and people are protesting again. And I leave it up to our listeners to choose which which way they, they want to, to view it. On that note, thank you to everyone who wrote in with your questions particular thank you to the person who wrote in and said that they would like some discourse on Holland. Ido and I will do you one better and have a future episode about not just Holland, but the Netherlands at some point in the near future. So we appreciate it. And please continue sending us your questions or discourse requests at uaskus.co.uk. And with that, our final segment is looking forward to the week ahead. Felix, what is one event in world politics that you'll be keeping an eye out in the next week? Yeah, so um, I, I kind of thought for a while, am I going to go for a Russia one or a non-Russia one? I decided to break out of my, my self-imposed rut. And I'm going to talk about a country that I also am very interested in, which is Turkey. 
which is right now seeing protests in Istanbul at, at Bosporus University, which is sort of by some measures one of the most prestigious universities, one of the best universities in Turkey, and where a sort of an, an Erdogan appointee has been appointed to, to, to essentially run the university. I, I think it's interesting because, A, it's supercharging kind of protests in, in Istanbul, which has recently kind of turned with a new Kemalist opposition mayor against the government. And also it's ahead of elections in two years' time where surprisingly the opposition is really competitive in polls. So really surprisingly so. And I, I'm just intrigued to see, I guess, whether after, you know, 17, 18 years of power, Erdogan can actually be felled. So these protests have been going on for about a week now, and I think they will they will quite clearly continue into into next and, and who knows to where. So I would I would be looking at that, I think. I unfortunately am going to be a broken record and say that the impeachment trial of Donald Trump starts is scheduled to begin next week. So I will be watching that. For those of you who are unaware, he was impeached by the House for inciting an insurrection, i.e. the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. 45 Republicans voted ahead of this trial that impeaching a president who is no longer in office is unconstitutional, which I think gives us a little little hint <laughs> at where this is going. You know, if they convict him, they could also bar him, Trump that is, from holding office ever again. But I think, and this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of this podcast about Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think that what we are seeing is that most Republicans have decided that they, in fact, do not want to cast Trumpism out of the party because they realize that it's politically powerful. But we'll see. And Ido, what will you be looking at in the week ahead? I'll be looking at Mario Draghi's progress. I'm probably butchering that. Uh, my apologies to any Italian listeners. Uh, Mario Draghi's progress in forming a government. So he was tapped in Italy by the president to form a technocratic government after the previous coalition of Giuseppe Conte collapsed. And so Draghi is a former president of the European Central Bank, and he will hopefully form a technocratic government in Italy. So it will be interesting to see to see what happens, uh, because obviously there are, there's a lot at stake within Italy itself. But there is also quite a lot more at stake on a European level for this government than perhaps is first is is most obvious. So because we don't know how long Draghi would be in office. But it is plausible that by about May next year, he could be almost the most senior European leader of a big country because there'll be a new German chancellor and it's possible that Macron could lose French elections in 2022. And so he would, he could be the most senior European leader of a big country. So there's actually quite a lot at stake. So, uh, so I'll be watching his progress in forming a government. You know, I have to say, you sold a story about central banks and technocrats as well as anybody was going to. So a well-chosen event. It's a shame there's so much news around because the fact that Italy is about to be led by a man nicknamed Super Mario really just should be so much <laughs> bigger a deal. And that's the world review difference. We will not <laughs> overlook Super Mario. With that, all that is left is for us to say... Well, and a gromlein spasiba to Felix Light. Felix, thank you so much for joining us today. Felix is a reporter at the Moscow Times and, more importantly, a New Statesman correspondent. Thanks, Felix. Bonjour. If you have enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review, subscribe, and tell your friends and your haters about it. 
As a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash worldreview, now written by me on Monday in addition to the Friday edition, and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening, and until next week. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.